What are you thinking of, Byron? Did anyone get beyond the reading for today? <laughs> Was that a really stupid question? Okay, did everyone do the reading for today? So what are you thinking of, Byron? Yeah, Tony. It's very interesting that uh, child Harold isn't since there anymore. So you did get beyond the reading. I mean, that's the actual assignment for today, yeah, the, that's, that's the assignment yeah, for Tuesday. Yeah, okay. So did people actually get to today's reading? No, okay, so except for you. Anyone else get beyond Tuesday's reading? Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that it's in the Spencerian form, something we'll talk about. Um, but everyone else, it's Greek too right now. Um, what about Julian and Madelow? What about the lyrics? What about the letters? What do you all think? It's a seminar. You have to think. And you have to think in lectures, too, but you can get away with just nodding. But you can't get away with just nodding in a seminar. Yeah, Tony. Do you remember the uh, Samuel Daniel conversation from Philemon? Yeah. I thought it was very similar to that. In what sense? In the sense that they're conversing about um, the merits of different ways of thinking, different philosophies, and there's no, I never feel like there's any sort of real intellectual resolution. Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're poets and they're, they never stop, there's never any resolution. Um, okay, they're poets, they never stop, there's not any resolution. Each thinks that they're going to turn out to be right, but in fact what happens in Julian and Madelow is that they each turn out to be wrong. Um, neither of them turns out to be right. And so it's called Julian and Madelow a conversation, but the conversation um, turns into a narrative, turns into a story in which there is a third and then ultimately a fourth character. Um, so who are, the, who are the major characters in Julian and Madelow? I mean, who are the characters, basically? There's also a dog, but the dog is not very important. Yeah. Although the dog, sorry, I'm going to interrupt myself. The dog is very important. Um, Byron had a dog who died of rabies. Um, and Byron nursed the dog through his rabies um, without, the dog's name was Bosun. Um, and Byron, as a young man in his, I, I guess he was about 20 or so, um, completely fearlessly loved his dog so much that he fearlessly nursed the dog through its rabies, um, which is a very stupid and dangerous thing to do. Um, and when the dog died, Byron was grief-stricken by it. He wrote an epitaph for the dog, but then a friend of his wrote another epitaph, which he, Byron, actually preferred. And he wanted to be buried with his dog when he died. Um, that is, he left instructions at the age of 20 that when he died, he would be buried with his dog. So there's a line in Julian Madelow, his dog was dead, which is the only mention of the dog. Um, towards the end, when Shelley, or when Julian returns to Venice at the end, do people remember that line? Um, it just comes out of nowhere, his dog was dead. Um, but it's probably um, a gesture at the dog who had actually died many years before the opening of the story in real life, before Shelley and Byron rode by the seaside. So, sorry, I interrupted you to, to give that important um, memorial for the dog, Boson, Boatswain. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Julian Madelow, uh, he's called the Maniac, or the Madman. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the third character. And would you count the, the wife? Well, she doesn't really appear. Um, we hear about her, but that's kind of third hand. 
Um, but one other character actually appears in the poem. Miss Robin? Um, she doesn't appear herself. That is, yeah. it's a first-person narrative that Julian is telling. Um, Julian is a name which is essentially a pun on Shelley. Madelo's uh, daughter. Madelo's daughter, yeah. Um, who is a young girl at the start of the poem, but when Julian returns later, after many years, he returns to Venice. And now she is a grown woman. And she tells him the rest of the story, what became of the maniac. Um, and he doesn't tell us what became of him. That is, um, do you remember the rest of the story briefly? Yeah. His wife, the wife comes back and then leaves again. Yeah, so the wife comes back and then leaves again. And um, the old Julian now, or the middle-aged Julian, because this is many years later, this is not when he and Madelo and Count Madelo are young men riding on the Lido, but now it's many years and Madelo's daughter is an adult. Um, says, but can't you tell me more? Some hint of um, where they met, why they parted. Um, and she says, let's just look at this. Has everyone finished it? Look, you guys need to be honest because we have a lot of really great poetry to read here, but it's um, better if I know what you've already read and what you haven't. So have people finished this poem? Is that the honest truth or the dishonest <coughs> truth? It's the honest truth? Okay, good. Um, so if you go to, I have different pagination from you because I have an older edition of this book. Um, but if you go to the very end of Julian Madelow, um, like the last page, which I now am not finding, um, but I will. Oh, here it is. Um, what page is that for you? It's, what is it, 134? Um, okay, uh, so maybe it's a seven-page difference. So um, it's the part that begins, on, for me it's page 126, so maybe you're 133. No, you, your pages don't look the same either. Okay, after many years and many changes, I returned. The name of Venice and its aspect was the same. But Madelo was traveling far away among the mountains of Arminie. That's how it would have been pronounced then. Um, and in fact, um, Byron was really interested in Armenia, was really interested in Armenian independence, um, learned Armenian, and is the co-author of a couple of books on um, Armenian grammar for <coughs> English speakers, that is, Armenian compared to English. He's the co-author of a couple of extant books, um, which will help English people learn Armenian. Um, Byron was interested. He thought it was an incredibly beautiful language. Um, he loved the poetry in Armenian, um, and he thought it was a very, very expressive language. Um, Byron was also... Um, against empire and the great empire of the day um, that he was, or, or um, that he was um, fighting on behalf of the freedom of its subjugated peoples um, was Turkey, was the Ottoman Empire. So Byron died in a campaign, a, a campaign for Greek independence against Turkey, um, and he was also um, strongly for Armenian 
independence. These are um, the, the um, hostilities between Greece and Turkey and between Armenia and Turkey are things that still exist today, are things that um, we know of um, as part of our politics today. So um, Matalo is far away among the mountains of Armenia. His dog was dead. His child had now become a woman such as it has been my doom to meet with few. A wonder of this earth, where there is little of transcendent worth, like one of Shakespeare's women. So um, does anyone hear the echo of the tempest there in that description of her? You can just say yes. Why, yes, it does sound like the tempest. Let's hear it. Does it sound like the tempest? Oh, yeah, how? <laughs> um, this is what Ferdinand says when he first sees Miranda. He says, oh, you wonder, um, when he first sees her. And Miranda also has a famous line when she says, um, when she sees Ferdinand, um, how wondrous mankind is, she thinks. First, um, first young man she's ever set eyes on. Um, she's amazed. So here is this word, she is a wonder of this earth, the Madelow's adult daughter now. This earth where there is little of transcendent worth, like one of Shakespeare's women. Kindly she and with a manner beyond courtesy received her father's friend. So who's her father's friend? Julian, yeah. Just notice the, this is among the most amazingly urbane poems ever written. That is, it's written in a kind of relaxed, um, um, smooth, easy style where um, you don't feel any reaching in order to sound poetic or in order to force the language into poetic form. It's written, although a lot of people don't notice this the first time they read it, it's written in rhymed couplets. Um, and that's the hardest kind of poetry to bring off as though it's natural. But this is written in a kind of cultivated, natural, smooth manner. And just notice the easy urbanity of that. That is, that um, he, is, he understands what it's like when you have to entertain a friend of your parents. You, run, you guys have all done that, right? You've gone to Boston and you run into a friend of your parents. Um, who knew that would happen? And now you have to have a conversation. And it's sort of like, that's not particularly the conversation you want to have, right? Um, but they want to have, oh, I remember you when you were so little. Look at you in college now. Um, so Julian is getting that, that she's just really good with her father's friend. It's part of, part of um, her graciousness, and that it's beyond simple courtesy, um, that, that she's just great. So, but it also makes him, do you see how it sort of makes him understand himself as middle-aged, as <coughs> someone who is not the center of a story, but is a kind of... Um, um, minor player um, in the story, a supporting actor now. She's the center of the story, and who's he? He's, he's playing the role of father's friend. Um, so, but still, kindly, she and with manner beyond courtesy received her father's friend. And when I asked of the lorn maniac, she, her memory tasked, and told as she had heard the mournful tale. 
and here's what she said, that the poor sufferer's health began to fail two years from my departure, but that then the lady who had left him came again. Her mien had been imperious, but she now looked meek. So Julian is returning from London feeling meek, and the lady who had been imperious and had scorned the maniac now returns, and she looked meek. Perhaps remorse had brought her low. Her coming made him better, and they stayed together at my father's. For I played, as I remember, with the lady's shawl. I might be six years old. So she remembers now <coughs> that she played with the lady's shawl, so she was six or so. I might be six years old. But after all, she left him. So that's it. That's the story she tells. Julian replies, why, her heart must have been tough. How did it end? Again, just to get a sense of Shelley's urbanity, I mean, do you guys have a sense of how amazing, how amazingly easy the style in Julian and Manlow is? I don't mean that the poem is easy, but that the style is just so natural in ways that we almost never think of rhymed poetry as being written in a natural style. One way you can hear that is just look at this as dialogue. If you set this out as prose, um, her coming made him better, and they stayed together in my father's. For I played, as I remember, with the lady's shawl. I might be six years old. But after all, she left him. So if I were to read that aloud, you'd have no idea that it rhymed. Um, it sounds like just a really well-written novel. And then look at his response. Why her heart must have been tough. How did it end? Again, it's almost inconceivable that that's part of rhymed couplets. So, but after all, she left him. Why, her heart must have been tough. How did it end? And then she replies, and was not this enough? They met, they parted. Child, is there no more? And then she replies, something within that interval which bore the stamp of why they parted, how they met. So there is more. There's something which explains why they parted, how they met. Yet if thine aged eyes disdain to wet those wrinkled cheeks with youth's remembered tears, ask me no more. But let the silent years be closed and seared over their memory as yon mute marble where their corpses lie. So now we learn a third thing. They're buried together somewhere. So they met, they parted. Story of human erotic life. That's it. Now we know they're dead. And she does not know whether she should tell the story to this aged man. Will he remember anything of what youth is like? Um, she doesn't want to tell him the story if he's going to disdain a love story. But Julian says, I urged and questioned still. She told me how all happened. But the cold world shall not know. So something really tragic, sad, awful did happen, but he's not going to tell us. Um, he agrees with her. The story is too sad for the world. And so he doesn't tell the story. So those are the four characters. Um, Julian, who stands for Shelley. As I say, Julian is a pun on Shellian. And 
a pun that Shelley liked because it brings him back to, does anyone know who the most famous Julian in history is? Yeah. Well, there are a couple of Roman emperors. Yeah, well, there's one in particular. There's a Julius who's a Roman emperor, but um, that's not Julian. But there's a Roman emperor named after Julius, but he called himself Julian, or was called Julian. So who is he, anyone? He has a very famous, um, like Alexander the Great and Winnie the Pooh, it's Julian the... No one remembers? Julian the Apostate. So what happened was he was the first Roman emperor after Constantine permitted Christianity and converted to Christianity and started turning the Roman Empire into the Holy Roman Empire. That is, it doesn't become the Holy Roman Empire for quite a while. But um, Constantine, for his own reasons, takes the Roman Empire into Christianity. Julian, after him, says no. And <coughs> he is remembered as the apostate. Do people know what the word apostate means? Someone who um, rejects a religion to which he or she properly belongs. Um, it's actually even stronger than that. It's usually someone who converts to a religion and then unconverts from it. Um, so they, they make a choice and then they decide to go back on their choice. So Julian the Apostate is, as Madela will say of this Julian, you always were among Christ's flock a perilous infidel. That's one of the first things that he says to Julian as they're riding by the Adriatic Sea. Um, you always were among Christ's flock a perilous infidel. Um, Shelley was, um, I don't know how much you know of Shelley's life or Byron's. Do people know anything about their lives? Byron's either? You've heard what Lady Caroline, well, you know from the letters something in Byron's life. Um, what Lady Caroline Lamb called him, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Um, very famous sentence about Byron. Um, all right, well, Shelley was an undergraduate at Oxford. And he and a friend of his were, they were young, they were revolutionary, as I, as I mentioned last week, Shelley um, and Byron were revolutionaries and pro-revolution all their lives. Um, Shelley at Oxford um, wrote a pamphlet on behalf of Irish independence from Britain. And he also wrote anonymously, but people figured out it was him, he wrote a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism in which he basically said, um, you have to be an atheist. It's not a choice. It's um, the only reasonable and um, um, philosophically, um, the, the, the only, the only um, attitude that shows any philosophical integrity, the necessity of atheism. So he was found out to have written that. His father wasn't happy. He was kicked out of Oxford um, and um, basically in serious trouble with authority which he was the rest of his life. He and Byron both left England for good um, because in England they were treated as um, um, really um, non-clubbable people, um, people who were against everything that um, English society, English culture believed in. When Shelley died, 
Um, when Shelley was young, he liked this poet quite that who we'll have more occasion to talk about named Robert Southey. Um, Southey was a friend of Wordsworth's and Coleridge's, not a great poet, but actually a very good poet. Um, some of his poems are still remembered, um, including um, a story. He, he, he has a lot of good children's poems as well. Um, but he was part of the group of poems called the Lake Poets. And they were called the Lake Poets because um, they lived in the Lake District of London. Byron will call them the Lakers, um, those who lived in the Lake District of London, which is this beautiful rural area. You've been there? No, but I, my, a former teacher of mine, whenever we were studying the romantic, she like, always recounted her tales of like, when she went there. Went to the Lake District. Yeah, now I really want to go. <laughs> oh, it's really beautiful. Yeah. It's really fantastically beautiful. Um, so Coleridge, um, Southey, and um, Wordsworth lived very near each other and, and used to see each other almost daily um, in the Lake District in northern England, um, sort of not that far south from Scotland. And um, they, hated the, they hated cities, they hated urban life, they hated um, the modernity that was coming. Late in life, there was a railroad was extended to, late in Wordsworth's life, a railroad was extended to the Lake District, and um, Wordsworth was just appalled because now all these um, people from London could make day trips there, and that was just going to ruin everything. Um, he saw strip malls coming. Um, and um, Shelley, when he was young, really, really liked Southey's poetry. Um, Southey, when he was young, was a revolutionary, as were all the um, Lake poets, Wordsworth and Coleridge, too. Um, Coleridge and Southey, in fact, when they were in their early 20s or late teens, even, planned to move to Pennsylvania and start a commune where um, sort of what later Hawthorne and his friends did at Brook Farm um, that idea was already one that, that Coleridge and Southey had, and they thought they'd start a new revolutionary kind of society. Um, then, as they would put it, they grew up and became conservative and you know, worried about what would happen if, if the radical elements um, got loose and so forth. Um, so Coleridge, I mean, Shelley went to visit Southey and quite liked him, um, but later um, started becoming appalled by his conservatism as did Byron. Um, so as you'll see when you start reading Don Juan, which you should start for next week. Um, by the way, it's pronounced Don Juan. It's spelt um, J-U-A-N, Byron, um, absolutely and intentionally pronounces in a complete, with complete English pronunciation. Um, so you'll know that someone hasn't studied it or hasn't read it if they ever call it Don Juan, Byron's Don Juan. The way you know is from the very first, he says, I want a hero, an uncommon want, when every day and week brings forth a new one, until filling up the world with, with Kant, the world proceeds, he's not the true one. So Byron says, so I've decided to take our old friend, Don, Juwan, yeah. Um, and that's one of the first jokes in, um, in Don Juan is how you have to pronounce the name. Um, so Don Juan is dedicated to Robert Southey, um, but it's a really vicious dedication. Um, you should read the dedication. Um, it begins, Bob Southey, you're a poet. 
poet laureate, um, which he was. And then Byron has nothing but contempt for how awful Southey is. So Shelley, on a trip, um, some, something like the trip that Byron um, describes in the letters that you read, um, and with Byron there, actually, um, signed his name in a visitor's book um, on Mont Blanc. And in signing his name, um, what you did was you signed your name if you wanted to sign a visitor's book, and it would say, you know, non, and then um, uh, provenance, where you're coming from, and destination, where you're going. Um, so name, where, you, where you're traveling from, where you're heading. So Shelley wrote P.D. Shelley, and then under you know, where he came from, he said England. And <coughs> under destination, he wrote l'enfer, that is hell. Um, <coughs> and unfortunately for him, Savi happened to be making the same trip a day or two later. And so he gets his visitor's book, and he sees Shelley and destination hell. And he's outraged, middle-aged, outraged man. I know these things no longer exist, but back in the 18-teens, they did. So he's totally outraged. He tells everyone in England that Shelley is really beyond hope, a total and utter atheist, just disgusting. Um, and so when Shelley died, just short of his 30th birthday, um, one of the headlines in a London newspaper, because Shelley was kind of notorious, was Shelley the atheist is dead. Now he knows whether there is a hell or not. Um, so that's a, a, a pretty appalling thing to say. Um, but it shows both how radical Shelley's atheism was um, and how much it scandalized the people in England. So that's why he calls himself Julian. Um, Julian who has rejected Christianity. So it's both a pun on Shellian and um, an allusion to this Roman emperor. Julian himself is named after Julius Caesar. Um, so it's a variation on the name Julius. And Julius, you may or may not know, is named after Aeneas's son, Eulus, um, or Julius, who is um, the founder of Rome. Um, so there's a kind of link backwards of, of naming for, naming for, naming for that goes all the way back essentially to Trojan times. Um, and that's something that Shelley liked as well. Um, so Julian is, does still in this poem retain his youthful sensitivity to... Um, the story that Madelow's daughter tells him about what happened to the maniac and his wife, who are now dead, um, what happened years earlier when Julian was off in London um, to the maniac and his wife. Um, <coughs> and that story um, is in some sense autobiographical. That is both Byron and Shelley um, had tormented erotic lives. Um, if you, did people, so again, be honest, did you read Byron's letters? So, sort of. Um, well, some of the letters are to um, the mother-in-law. Did people figure this out? 
um, reading the notes, you know their notes at the back. If you look at um, some of the letters in 1812, he keeps talking about the trouble he's having with C and how she's um, constantly bugging him. And He also, um, these are, if you brought this, which I hope you did, um, trying to see if, where he actually mentions her. Um, yeah, I won't find right away where he where he actually mentions um, C, but C is Caroline Lamb. Oh yeah, um, if you look on page nine seventy eight, for example, if you have it, um, there's a kind of P.S. to a letter to Lady Melbourne. I observe that C, that is Caroline, in her late epistles, lays peculiar stress upon her powers of attraction, upon W's attachment, etc. And by way of enhancing the extreme value of her regards, tells me that she could make anyone in love with her an amiable accomplishment, but unfortunately a little too general to be valuable. For was there ever yet a woman, not absolutely disgusting, who could not say or do the same thing? Any woman can make a man in love with her. Show me her who can keep him so. You, perhaps, can show me such a woman, but I've not seen her for these three weeks. So, um, Lady Melbourne, it, do people know what her relation to Caroline Lamb is? She's Caroline Lamb's mother-in-law. So, Byron is writing letters to a woman who is um, about 35 years older than he is. Um, and who was herself uh, had quite an interesting and scandalous sexual life. Um, and they really get along. They really like each other. Um, she and Byron did not have an affair. But Byron is having an affair with her son's wife and writing her all about it. And she's writing him back all about it. And now Byron is complaining that her son's wife isn't leaving him alone. Um, he wants to break it off, but she doesn't. Um, so who does Byron confide in but the mother-in-law of the woman he's having an affair with? So you would think in um, most situations, if we're not dealing with Lord Byron, um, who is mad, bad, and dangerous to know, um, who everyone fell in love with, um, you would think in most situations that if um, you were seeing the wife of a woman's son, she would like hate you. Um, but no, they just had this really um, intense and very open conversation about it. Yeah. But she's whose mother? <coughs> so Byron is having an affair with Caroline Lamb. Okay. Caroline Lamb is um, married to a man named William, right. whose mother is Lady Melbourne. Okay. Got it. Okay. So, um, yeah, so this is, and as you see from other letters, um, uh, the question, how many lovers does a woman take in Italy, is a question that comes up. Um, <coughs> uh, these letters are hilarious. I mean, I, um, I hope you found them hilarious. I love this one, too. Um, if I can find it. Um, Yeah, this is uh, page 994. Um, 
It's actually worth starting on page 993, just again to get a sense of uh, Byron's. Um, this, the, oh, you have a different, yeah, December 24th, 1816. Um, so, um, to Thomas More. Um, who was uh, an Irish poet who became a friend of his. Um, he says, I have taken a fit of writing to you which portends postage. Postage at the time was very expensive. Um, the idea of sending a letter for only a very little bit of money was an innovation that came up um, in the world, a British innovation of the early Victorian era, what was called the penny post. <coughs> but at the time, it was really expensive to send letters. Um, sort of like FedExing a postcard, um, overnighting postcards, except they weren't overnight, they were weeks. Um, so I have taken a fit of writing to you, he says to Moore, which portends postage, once from Verona, once from Venice, and again from Venice. Thrice, that is, for this you may thank yourself, for I heard that you complained of my silence. So here goes for garrulity. Now he's going to um, say a lot. I trust that you received my other twain of letters, my way of life, or may of life, which is it, according to the commentators? My way of life has fallen into great regularity. Anyone know what he's talking about there? He's going to quote this in Don Juan as well. Um, <coughs> my way of life, see if, see if this rings a bell. My way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. What is it? Say it, last just, point. sorry? Did he miss last point? Byron will quote this in, uh, will quote the phrase at greater length in Don Juan. But the line that he's quoting is, my way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf, and that which should attend old age as honor, troops of friends, are you remembering it? Love obedience. Love, obedience. I must not look to have, but merely mouth honor, breath. So what is it? Do you know? Sonnet. Sorry? No, it's not a sonnet. No, you're actually thinking of um, the um, when, yellow, when yellow leaves are none or few do hang. But my way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. Say, Macbeth. He's quoting, he loved Macbeth. He loved the play Macbeth. And he's quoting a famous and disputed phrase in Macbeth. So the line in Macbeth is, my way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. That's the famous line. And in the 18th century, people didn't know what that meant. Um, why way of life? You know, my life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. That makes sense. But why way of life? So some of the 18th century editors thought that, no, that was a misprint for May of life. Um, life used to, it used to be May in my life, but then it turned into autumn. And so there are a lot of 18th century corrections of way of life into May of life. No modern edition of Shakespeare would have um, May of life. That's a stupid 18th century literalism. Um, and what the original version of Macbeth and the folio has is way of life. So Byron is remembering this, um, and as you can see, 
he doesn't remember what the commentators think the right one is, but he prefers way of life. So I trust that you received my other twain of letters, my <coughs> way of life, or may of life, which is it according to the commentators, my way of life, is fallen into great regularity. I'm no longer the wild man that I was. In the mornings, I go over in my gondola. That's how it was pronounced at the time, as you will know from Julian and Madelow. In the mornings, I go over in my gondola to babble Armenian with the friars of the convent of St. Lazarus and to help one of them in correcting the English of an English and Armenian grammar. So that's what Julian and Madelow is mentioning, the, um, that Madelow is in Armenia. He's not in Armenia. Um, he is just learning Armenian, but that's how, how Julian puts it. Um, in the evenings, I do one of many nothings, either at the theaters or some of the conversaciones, which are like our routes, or rather worse, for the women sit in a semicircle by the lady of the mansion and the men stand about the room. To be sure there is one improvement upon ours, instead of lemonade with their ices, they hand about stiff rum punch, punch by my palate, and this they think English. I would not disabuse them of so agreeable an error, because... Um, they drink a lot more than people do in England. They think that's an English thing to do. Good. Um, no, not for Venice. What's he quoting there? Anyone know? Othello. Last night, he, as you'll see in Don Juan, he has a great line where he quotes some Shakespeare, and he says, I hope you'll forgive me, but I just so much love to quote. And boy, does he love to quote, and it's great. Um, last night, I was at the Count Governor's which, of course, comprises the best society and is very much like other gregarious meetings in every country, as in ours, except that instead of the Bishop of Winchester, you have the Patriarch of Venice and a motley crew of Austrians, Germans, noble Venetians, foreigners, and if you see a quiz, you may be sure he is a consul. Um, oh, by the way, I forgot. When I wrote from Verona to tell you that at Milan, again, how they pronounced it, um, that at Millen I met with a countryman of yours, a Colonel Fitzgerald, a very excellent, good-natured fellow who knows and shows all about Millen <coughs> and is, as it were, a native there. He is particularly civil to strangers, and this is his history, at least an episode of it. And then he tells this great story. Six and twenty years ago, Colonel Fitzgerald, then an ensign, being in Italy, fell in love with the Marchesa Castiglione, and she with him. The lady must be at least twenty-four years his senior, the war broke out. He returned to England to serve, not his country, for that's Ireland. So he's from Ireland, not from England, but he was in the English um, Navy. Um, he, so he returned to England to serve, not his country, for that's Ireland, but England, which is a different thing. And she, heaven knows what she did. In the year 1814, the first enunciation of the definitive treaty of peace and tyranny was developed to the astonished Milanese by the arrival of Colonel Fitzgerald, who flinging himself full length at the feet of Madame Castiglione, murmured forth in half-forgotten Irish-Italian eternal vows of indelible constancy. Um, so do people know what happened in 1814? What? Say it. Well, Okay, yeah. Um, know what else happened in 1814? Was it conference? No, in Europe. Yeah. 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 After the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, after the defeat of Napoleon, 
um, whom Byron admired as a revolutionary who um, took control of the entire world. Um, Byron admired satanic figures in the sense of Satan that we saw in Paradise Lost, revolutionaries who against all odds um, had extraordinary ambition and took over the world. Um, towards the end of his life, which he didn't know was towards the end of his life because he was in his 30s, but towards the end of his life, um, for various strange reasons having to do with his mother and her desires, um, he had to take on the, the name Noel, as, um, which was not a name that, that belonged to him. So sometimes you know that his name is George Gordon, Lord Byron. Um, sometimes um, you will hear his name said as George Gordon Noel Byron, and um, he actually got the right to call himself Lord Noel Byron, which is a weird way of describing yourself in, according to English, um, rules. And so he got um, his stationary monogrammed with Noel By with the initials of Noel Byron, namely NB. Um, and he loved being able to have NB be his initials um, because NB is... Napoleon Bonaparte. So he got to have a Napoleonic um, monogram. Um, as you will see, both Shelley and Byron were um, thought a lot about Napoleon um, and had ambivalent feelings about him. So yeah, so in 1814, Napoleon is defeated, and then what happens, Maria? Yeah, there was a conversation. <coughs> Sorry? Right. Yeah. Right, and what it meant was that revolutionary days in Italy were over. Napoleon was encouraging first and then t trying to take control over Italy. But now this war was over, and Byron regards this as the, um, um, the definitive treaty of peace and therefore of tyranny. That is, um, these revolutionary Napoleonic wars are over, whether Napoleon would have been a tyrant or not, or was a tyrant or not, is, doesn't matter that much to Byron because he lost. Um, but now things are settled, and um, therefore tyranny has returned, absolute monarchy has returned. Um, and now these wars being over, Colonel Fitzgerald goes back to Milan, flings himself at the feet of Madame Castiglione, murmured forth in half-forgotten Irish-Italian eternal vows of indelible constancy. The lady screamed and exclaimed, Who are you? So here's her lover returned and saying, I've loved you forever, I always will. Um, she screams and says, Who are you? The colonel cried, What? Don't you know me? I am so-and-so, etc., etc., etc. Till at length the Marchesa, mounting, from reminiscence to reminiscence through the lovers of the intermediate 25 years. So she thinks about one lover, reminds her of her previous lover, reminds her of her previous lover. She goes back 25 years worth of lovers um, and then arrived at last at the recollection of her povero sublieutenant, the poor sublieutenant, the poor ensign. She then said, was there ever such virtue? That was her very word. And being now a widow, which she hadn't been while she was having all those lovers, but being now a widow, gave him apartments in her palace, reinstated him in all the rights of wrong, a great phrase. Um, the wrong is having non-marital sex 
with um, someone you'd had an adulterous relationship with anyhow. Um, so she reinstated him in all the rights of wrong and held him up to the admiring world as a miracle of incontinent fidelity. He couldn't help being faithful. That's the oxymoron in the phrase incontinent fidelity. Incontinent means you can't keep yourself in check. Um, that's why medically now it means that you can't hold your bladder. Um, but it basically means that you can't control yourself. It means you don't have self-control. So sins of incontinence in Dante are sins of lust, of gluttony, of things like that, um, where people can't exercise self-control. So she holds him up as a miracle of incontinent fidelity. He couldn't control himself. He couldn't control his fidelity. No matter what, he was faithful. Um, so that's a good oxymoron. And the unshaken abdial of absence. Um, so abdial in Paradise Lost, um, if you've read the whole thing, do you remember who abdial is? Yes, Abdiel is the one member of Satan's forces in Book 6 of Paradise Lost who refuses to rebel when Satan says it's time to mount a revolution against God. And Abdiel says, no, how dare you do it? And Satan says, what do you mean? Um, God is a tyrant, and we're fighting for freedom. And Abdiel has a great line, in which he says to Satan, um, thyself, you think you're free, but thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled. You've made, you were a slave to yourself. Thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled. Um, that idea of Satan as having enslaved himself is an idea that you will see a little bit in Shelley. Shelley says Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost, but also that he does have some bad qualities. Um, and those bad qualities are that he confuses self-infatuation with freedom, or at least risks making that confusion. He's not as bad as God, says Shelley, who is the worst tyrant ever in human imagination. Um, but he's not perfect. And that's something that Shelley points out about him as well. Um, Okay, so Byron, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know. Um, if you've read Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff is based on Byron. Um, how many people have read Wuthering Heights? Yeah, so Heathcliff is what's called the Byronic hero. Um, if he is a hero, he's a very ambivalent figure in Wuthering Heights. But his charisma, the charisma of the dangerous um, romantic guy, that's a Byronic idea. And the word Byronic... Um, has just become an adjective in our language for someone who is like this. Um, since you're about to start Child Harold, um, and you, d you did start it, and since um, the rest of you are about to start it, um, just take a look at um, the beginning of Canto 3 of Child Harold. We're not reading the whole thing in previous, as I mentioned before, in previous instantiations of this course, um, we did. Um, but um, what happened was Byron visited the places that you read um, some of the letters that he wrote to his mother about the travels that he did in Europe as a young man in his, in, at the age of 21 and 22. Um, when he went to Albania and, and met um, the Pasha Ali and was well treated by him and um, was 
was in the wildest places imaginable, was almost shipwrecked, um, all sorts of um, pretty amazing adventures. Um, he started writing a narrative poem about someone named Harold. Do people know what child means in the title? What? Um, no, it doesn't quite mean squire. A squire may be a child, but you can be a squire without being a child. Yeah. A candidate for knighthood. Um, so child Roland in, um, in Shakespeare and then in Browning is someone who um, is not a knight, is not a success um, yet, but is engaged in adventures which, if they're successful, if he lives he will be made a knight. So here's Child Harold. And Harold is based on Byron. Um, and Byron was going to write a narrative poem, but eventually it turned out to be this amazing um, description of his travels. They're written, as you already pointed out, in Spenserian stanzas. Uh, do people know what Spenserian stanzas are? Um, can you say? Yeah. Where do they come from? Who invented them? Spencer. Spencer. Yes. You took a course on Spencer. Yeah, they're called Spencerian because they were invented by the English poet Edmund Spencer, um, who wrote adventure stories about Arthurian knights. In, uh, wrote, it's actually the other class I'm teaching this semester, but he wrote a thousand-page romance um, in poetry, in stanzas, which are nine lines long, very hard to write, um, nine lines long, and they rhyme A, B, A, you don't have to know this, but it's good that you, it's good that you are, it's good that you're curious, they rhyme A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. And the last line, that last C rhyme, A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. That last C rhyme is in a longer line, a line called an Alexandrine, which generally has 12 syllables, that is six iambic feet, rather than 10 syllables or five iambic feet. So if you um, just look at the first canto, this is page 104, if you have the um, McGann Oxford edition of Byron's major works. Um, is thy face like thy mother's, my dear child? Ada, sole daughter of my house and heart. When last I saw thy young blue eyes, they smiled. And then we parted. Not as now we part, but with a hope. Awaking with a start, the waters heave around me, and on high the winds lift up their voices. I depart, whither I know not, but the hours gone by, when Albion's lessening shores could grieve or glad mine eye. So you can see, even the way it's printed, that that last line is longer. And it gives a kind of conclusiveness to the end of each stanza. Um, so that, just so you know the form, that's the, that's the stanza that Spencer invented and that some but very few poets have written long poems in since then. Shelley uses Spenserian stanzas, as you will see, when he writes his elegy to Keats called Adonais, partly because Keats really loves Spenserian stanzas as well. Um, but they're hard to write, hard to write well, and um, poets who do write them 
well are partly showing their incredible virtuosity in writing them. Um, in the 20th century, in the contemporary days, and the days of poets who were alive before you guys, I mean, who were still alive after you were born, um, there's a poet named Kenneth Cope, K-O-C-H. Um, some of you may know his book about teaching poetry to children called Rose, Where Did You Get That Red? Um, anyhow, he's a wonderful um, New York school poet in the, in the middle to late 20th century. And he wrote a couple of um, novel-length poems in Spencerian stanzas, including one about baseball, um, which are quite wonderful. Um, but they're hard. They're hard. Don't try them without a lot of training, because you could hurt yourself, especially on those long lines. Um, so what he's describing here, I just want to see what the note, how much the note tells you here. Um, the notes here aren't, aren't um, extensive, and I, that's actually a good thing, because everything could be annotated in Byron, and then you would feel guilty about not re reading the notes, right? Um, but here it's just, you know, figure it out. That's the basic um, idea. Um, so... At any rate, do people have has anyone here heard the name Ada Lovelace? Kind of familiar. Do you know who she is? Yeah, she wrote the first computer program. Yeah, she, computer program. Um, she was a, a mathematical genius who worked with Charles Babbage, who was the first person um, coming up with what he called, do you remember what it was called? An analytic engine. So he had this idea, which is a 19th century idea, um, that you could do calculations mechanically with an engine. Um, and he got the idea that you could do this by looking at how weaver's looms, how automated looms um, were um, designed to weave certain patterns. And he thought, well, those patterns could be mathematical patterns. And Ada Lovelace, who... Um, was uh, um, younger than him, but understood his work as no one else did, um, also said, not only could you do that, but can you say more about it? You could, you could actually um, write patterns which you then put into the machine, the analytic engine, and tell it different things to do, um, different calculations to make, and so on. So she was the person who came up with the idea of computer programming. Um, did she know where it was going to go? Well, of course not. Um, but that's like saying that, that um, Fulton didn't know or James Watt didn't know um, that eventually we would be shooting rockets to the moon. Um, but did she have an absolutely earth-shaking, earth-shattering idea? And, and um, was she the person who um, got people thinking about this? Yes. Who is she? Byron's daughter. So here he's describing her. Um, he never, she was born to his estranged wife. Um, Byron left England rather than undergoing any more of the furious acrimony um, that was occurring between him and his wife. He mentions her. Her name is Annabella Milbank, and he mentions her in the letters to um, Lady Melbourne and to some other people. Um, so um, she's his daughter. 
and he's now away, leaving England forever, um, because she, his wife, in the divorce proceedings is, and um, as well as Caroline Lamb and various other things, are accusing Byron, perhaps truly, perhaps not, it's not clear, of having incest with his half-sister, Augusta, um, whose child Byron might have been the father of. Um, the general view now is probably not, but not definitely not. Um, and also that Byron was engaged in lots of homoerotic activity, which probably he was. Um, Byron kind of thought sex was great, and whoever you wanted to have sex with, um, sure, that was good. Um, so he's leaving England for good and thinking as, so as Child Harold begins, he's, think, he's dreaming about his daughter who he's never going to see again and who um, is, he's going to die while she's still a young girl. But she turns out to be incredibly important, you know, probably for the history of the world more important than he is um, in her own right. Um, <coughs> and um, what happened with Child Harold was he'd written the first two cantos of Child Harold. They were published, and they were an unbelievable success, overnight success. He had no idea this, that this would happen. And as he wrote in a letter, I woke up one morning and found myself famous. Um, he had been poor up until that point, even though he was an aristocrat. His um, complete scoundrel of a father and the rest of his family had, had utterly um, devastated the estate. Um, but now, suddenly, he was fantastically wealthy. Um, because of the success of his work. Um, so now he continues Child Harold's pilgrimage, leaving England for good, continues writing Child Harold's pilgrimage, and it's no, he's no longer even um, making any effort to claim that this is a story about Child Harold. But he starts, he writes, begins Canto Three, um, with this dream, is thy face like thy mother's, my dear child? Add a sole daughter of my house and heart. When last I saw thy young blue eyes, they smiled, and then we parted. Not as now we part, but with a hope. Awaking with a start, the waters heave around me, and on high the winds lift up their voices. I depart whither I know not, but the hours gone by when Albion's lessening shores could grieve or glad mine eye. So he's basically saying, I'm now 28 years old, and I'm too old to either be sad or happy to see England's shores disappearing in the rearview mirror. <coughs> I'm too old. I'm too blasted. I'm too um, um, jaded for that. But he's on the ocean again. That's great. Once more upon the waters, yet once more, and the waves bound beneath me as a steed that knows his rider. Welcome to their roar, swift be their guidance, wheresoe'er it lead. Though the strained mast should quiver as a reed, and the rent canvas fluttering, strew the gale, still must I on. For I am as a weed flung from the rock on ocean's foam to sail where'er the surge may sweep or tempest's breath prevail. 
And then he describes himself in the first two cantos of Child Herald. In my youth's summers, excuse me, my youth's summer, I did sing of one, the wandering outlaw of his own dark mind. So he's saying, when I was young, I sang the song of Child Herald. Now I'm going to continue this song. So that one, that, that capital O, one, is Harold, but Harold is Byron. So this is Byron's one-line self-portrait, the wandering outlaw of his own dark mind. That's how Byron sees himself. And that's the Byronic rebelliousness that he sees in himself that he is proud of, where you can say, look, you're just doing that out of pride. But his response would be, that's right. I'm proud of being proud. I'm proud of not being prissy and saying, oh, I'm not proud. Um, I'm, I have earned this pride because I am the wandering outlaw of my own dark mind. That is, he's thinking of himself as satanic. And so you could, since so many of you have read Wuthering Heights, you could easily see Heathcliff embracing this description of himself. Heathcliff is a little bit too coarse for this. That is, Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights doesn't have the kind of verbal facility that often goes with the Byronic hero. But the attitude towards himself, the contempt for social niceties and the contempt for feeling um, that you should do right by what society regards as doing right. Um, that's what Heathcliff gets from Byron. So in my youth summer, I did sing of one, the wandering outlaw of his own dark mind. Again, I seize the theme then, but begun and bear it with me as the rushing wind bears the cloud onwards. In that tale I find the furrows of long thought and dried up tears, which ebbing leave a sterile track behind, or which all heavily the journeying years plod the last sands of life where not a flower appears. Um, so he's, this, he's saying, I used to be young and Byronic. Now I'm facing the nothingness of human life. So this is a place, again, to look at... You know, I'm partly going on, going on like this to try to give you a sense of both Byron and Shelley. But take a look at the preface and the opening of Julian and Manlow. So, um, Shelley has read Child Herald and <coughs> writes this poem about beginning with a conversation, probably a real conversation, he and Byron had in Venice. Um, they were the closest of friends, Shelley and Byron were. Um, the daughter in Julian and Manilow is not Ada Lovelace. She's off in England. Um, the daughter in Julian and Manilow is... Does anyone know who she is? Did you read the footnotes? She's based on a real person, but a person who died in childhood. Um, died after this poem was written, but didn't live to be, didn't, didn't um, grow up. Was sent to a convent. Sent to a convent. Yeah. If you um, remember, if any of you has read Portrait of a Lady, 
the um, Henry James novel. Osmond is also a Byronic character, and he has a daughter who has been sent to a con to a convent, um, Pansy, um, and um, she is probably based on the same character. Henry James was really interested in Byron and Shelley. He actually wrote a novel called The Aspirin Papers about a poet who, um, whose papers are in contention, Jeffrey Aspirin, who's a combination of Byron and Shelley. And the, um, one of the characters in The Aspirin Papers is the much older in fact, the old woman in the Aspirin Papers is Claire Claremont, um, now an old woman, who <coughs> had been Jeffrey Aspirin's lover. So Claire Claremont was Mary Shelley's stepsister. And Byron, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, and Claire Claremont were all traveling together in Geneva. They all were living in a house together in Geneva with some other people. Um, possibly and maybe even probably all having sex with each other, um, but Byron was certainly having, he was being Byron. Um, so Claire Claremont, um, Shelley's stepsister-in-law, um, became pregnant with a young person, a young embryo. Um, and gave birth to a baby, a girl, who, again, it's not absolutely certain, but Byron believed, and she believed, and most people believe, um, was Byron's daughter. Um, some people think she might have been Shelley's daughter, but um, it's unlikely. Um, so that young girl is the girl in Julian and Manilow. Her name is Allegra. And um, as I say, she eventually died of a fever, I think at age four. Um, but Byron really, really loved her. And um, he and Claire Claremont had various fights about her. It was part of the, the erotic disaster of all their lives. So at any rate, in 1818, um, Byron and Shelley are the closest of friends. When Shelley died, um, a year, uh, about two years before Byron did, um, what Byron said of him was, Shelley was the only man I ever knew who was not a brute, um, which is a pretty harsh thing to say, especially given who he's saying it to, which are other people he knew. Um, <coughs> but um, Shelley thought Byron was the great poet of the age. Byron thought Byron was the great poet of the age. Um, Shelley is actually the greatest poet we're reading, um, but... Um, he had a kind of modesty about him that Byron didn't. So here he frames the story. Count Mandelow is a Venetian nobleman, but Count Mandelow is Byron. So he's not really a Venetian nobleman. He's a nobleman living in Venice. Count Mandelow is a Venetian nobleman of ancient family and of great fortune, who, without mixing much in the society of his countrymen, resides chiefly at his magnificent palace in that city, that is, in, in Venice. He is a person of the most consummate genius and capable, if he would direct his energies to such an end, of becoming the redeemer of his degraded country, that is, the redeemer of Italy. But, and so here's Shelley, one of Shelley's two um, important statements about Byron in this poem, but it is his weakness to be proud. 
he derives from a comparison of his own extraordinary mind with the dwarfish intellects that surround him, an intense apprehension of the nothingness of human life. So that's, a, again, a great one-sentence description of Byron, that he looks at those around him. He's so much more brilliant than they are that he thinks it's all pointless. He derives from a comparison of his own extraordinary mind the dwarfish intellects that surround him an intense apprehension of the nothingness of human life. <coughs> his passions and his powers are incomparably greater than those of other men. And instead of the latter having been employed in curbing the former, that is, his powers being employed to curb his passions, they have mutually lent each other strength. That's incontinence for you. His ambition preys upon itself for want of objects which it can consider worthy of exertion. So he has extraordinary ambition, but nothing to be ambitious about. So his ambition preys upon itself. I say that Madelow is proud because I can find no other word to express the concentered and impatient feelings which consume him. But it is on his own hopes and affections only that he seems to trample. For in social life, no human being can be more gentle, patient, and unassuming than Madelow. He is cheerful, frank, and witty. His more serious conversation is a sort of intoxication. Men are held by it as by a spell. He has traveled much, and there is an inexpressible charm in his relation of his adventures in different countries. So it's not that he's, like Heathcliff, vicious to others. No way. This is all internalized for him. So he's not like, um, like the kind of Byronic hero who makes other people feel bad. His own extraordinary powers have the result of making only himself feel bad. So I think always remember this about Byron, his kindness to others in Shelley's portrait of him, um, his patience with them, his frankness, his cheerfulness, his wittiness. And yet inside, to quote Dr. Johnson, it is all, oh son, how I hate thy beams. Then you get Shelley's own self-portrait, which is very modest indeed. Um, an affectation of modesty, but modest. Julian is an Englishman of good family, passionately attached to those philosophical notions which assert the power of man over his own mind. So that's what Byron doesn't seem to have, power over his own mind. He's the wandering outlaw of his own dark mind. And also attached to those notions which assert the immense improvements of which, by the extinction of certain moral superstitions, human society may be yet susceptible. So get rid of religion, and we could have a good human society, is what Julian thinks. Without concealing the evil in the world, he is forever speculating how good may be made superior. He is a complete infidel and a scoffer at all things reputed holy, and Madelow takes a wicked pleasure in drawing out his taunts against religion. What Madelow thinks on these matters is not exactly known. So that's interesting also. Shelley doesn't know whether Byron believes in God. Julian, in spite of his heterodox opinions, is conjectured by his friends to possess some good qualities. How far this is possible, the pious reader will determine. So could he have good qualities if he's an atheist? Well, pious reader, it's up, for you, uh, up to you to decide. Julian is rather 
serious. And then one other description of Byron. Um, this is at the beginning of the poem. So they're having this wonderful talk as they ride, and it reminds Julian of the conversation. So poets tell, this is at line 40 of the poem. Um, Twas forlorn yet pleasing, such as once, so poets tell, the devils held within the dales of hell concerning God, free will, and destiny of all that earth has been or yet may be, all that they may imagine or believe, or hope can paint or suffering may achieve, we descant. Um, so which poets tell the story of the devils in hell arguing about fate, free will, and destiny? Or which poet, I will say in the singular? Milton, yeah. It's in um, Paradise Lost. It's in the reading of Paradise Lost that you did. Some sing songs and others go and talk philosophy, even though they're in hell. And then um, you get this description right after that of Byron. And I, forever still, is it not wise to make the best of ill, argued against despondency. So I thought you should be optimistic about the future of mankind. I argued against despondency, but pride made my companion take the darker side. The sense that he was greater than his kind had struck, methinks, his eagle spirit blind through gazing, by gazing on its own exceeding light. So Byron's brightness blinded him. His eagle spirit was blinded by his very brightness. That again is Shelley's quick description of him. So the thing to do is just be amazed by him as a character, and a character who wrote this unbelievably great poetry. Um, and do the reading for Tuesday. Okay, have a good weekend. <laughs>